Today we're going to get the big picture of First Timothy. A wonderful book in the Bible. It's been very encouraging to me, very helpful to me as a pastor, as a minister of the gospel of Jesus Christ. Uh, I gain much wisdom from these Holy Spirit-inspired books like First and Second Timothy as well as Titus. So let's make sure we understand who is the human author whom the Holy Spirit used to write the book. Well, you don't have to guess. You don't have to be some uh, unbelieving critical scholar. You can look at the very first verse in your Bible here in 1 Timothy, and it says, Paul, an apostle of Christ Jesus, by the command of God. (laughs) Jesus Christ met the apostle Paul, who used to be called Saul, if you read the book of Acts. He met him on that road to Damascus, and God changed his life forever and used him to write this wonderful book. So who is the recipient? Again, we don't have to guess that either. You probably guessed by the name of the book. Well, look at, again, verse 1. So Paul, an apostle of Christ Jesus, by command of God our Savior and of Christ Jesus our hope, to Timothy. So this book was written to Timothy as well as the church. There, it's not necessarily so obvious from the text, but it was also written to the church, and therefore there's much we can gain even from this to today. Now where was Timothy when... Uh, Paul was writing, well, you need to understand something. Paul was, uh, wasn't in Ephesus, but Timothy was. So you can see Ephesus there in, in the southwest part of modern-day Turkey. That's where Paul had sent Timothy to, to pastor the church in Ephesus. And you can see in verse 3 what's going on here. In verse 3 it says, As I urged you when I was going to Macedonia, remain at Ephesus. So the text tells you that Timothy was pastoring in Ephesus. Now when did this book take place? When was it written? This is a letter that the Apostle Paul wrote to Timothy. And as best we can tell, it was somewhere between the years of 62 and 64. Between 62 and 64. Paul had got out of his first imprisonment, uh, and so it was probably written before Paul's second imprisonment. And Paul wrote the letter that we call 1 Timothy for several reasons. You you kind of pick up on these as you read the book. By the way, let me encourage you, read the whole book in one sitting. You can do it. It it takes me about 20 minutes to read all six chapters in one sitting. encourage you to do that. And, And another little good exercise, by the way, I haven't said this, is uh, like for next week, for example, when we do Second Timothy, I suggest maybe if you want to try this, if you've never done it, read Second Timothy every day of the week. As we build up to next Sunday, we'll be looking at Second Timothy. That's that's an exercise I recommend if you've never done that, and, and just kind of pickle yourself in the Word of God that way. But anyway, there. Why did why did uh, Paul write the letter to Timothy? Well, he wanted to encourage Timothy. Timothy wasn't an old man. Uh, it, was, it was a difficult time. He's in Ephesus. I mean, there was a lot of reasons. <laughs> Ephesus, you need to understand something about Ephesus. Ephesus had a temple to Diana. This is one of the, the, the wonders of the world. It was, a, it was a hotbed, if you will, for idolatry. Uh, people from all over would come and, and worship. Uh, Diana had another name of Artemis. Maybe you've heard that name. Uh, this was an amazing place. So 
there was a church that had been established there. They were, they were suffering as a result of the idolatry around them. And so Timothy needed God's grace, mercy, and peace, which is why he starts the letter in verse 2. He says to Timothy, my true child in the faith, grace, mercy, and peace from God the Father and Christ Jesus our Lord. That's what he needed. He needed the encouragement of God's grace, mercy, and peace. A second reason why Paul wrote is he wanted to explain how a local church should be managed. How is a local church to operate? Well, we can see the purpose of the letter in chapter 3, verse 14. Look at chapter 3, verse 14. We don't have to guess why Paul wrote, because he says so, chapter 3, verse 14. I hope to come to you soon, but I am writing these things to you, so that if I delay, you may know how one ought to behave in the household of God, which is the church of the living God, a pillar and buttress of the truth. A third reason why Paul's writing is he's exhorting Timothy, use the authority, the God-given authority that you have as a pastor or an elder. Use it in the church. There were some bad things happening in the church at Ephesus, which we'll read about in just a moment. And so he needed to step up, if you will, be the man of God that God had called him to be. Well, here's our theme for today, coming from Dennis Mock's book on the New Testament survey. I quote, Paul wrote Timothy to instruct him on how people should conduct themselves in the church with regard to belief and behavior, and to exhort him to refute false doctrine and faithfully teach correct doctrine, end quote. So that's what the book is about. We'll see how that is, is played out here as we, as we go through the book. Well, in chapter 1, Paul just jumps right in and he starts giving some responsibilities for the pastor and the people here in the church. Various responsibilities that they needed to know. And so Paul's not wasting any time here. He's, he's getting really to the heart of his message and dealing with the teaching of, of correct doctrine. Doctrine, don't be scared by the words, just biblical teaching. So let's have a look what... Uh, what he says. And, and the first responsibility that he basically gives us here is, hey, Timothy, you need to teach healthy doctrine. You might, in your Bible, have the word sound. Sound means healthy. It's wholesome. Wholesome, healthy doctrine is what the church and Timothy needed. So Timothy needed to teach that. And so look what Paul says here in verse 3. As I urge you when I was going to Macedonia, remain at Ephesus so that you may charge certain persons not to teach any different doctrine, nor to devote themselves to myths and endless genealogies which promote speculations, rather than the stewardship from God that is by faith. The aim of our charge is love that issues from a pure heart and a good conscience and a sincere faith. Certain persons by swerving from these, have wandered away into vain discussion, desiring to be teachers of the law, without understanding either what they are saying or the things about which they make confident assertions. Look at verse 8. Now we know that the law is good, if one uses it lawfully, understanding this, that the law is not laid down for the just, but for the lawless and disobedient, for the ungodly and sinners from 
the unholy and profane, for those who strike their fathers and mothers, for murderers, the sexually immoral, men who practice homosexuality, enslavers, liars, perjurers, and whatever else is contrary to sound doctrine, in accordance with the gospel of the glory of the blessed God with which I have been entrusted. Paul was telling Timothy to teach healthy doctrine. Don't be like these false teachers. Now, why is it important to have correct doctrine? Well, if the teaching was not correct, then the behavior would not be correct. For what we believe determines what we do. You've probably heard me say this. I learned this from my pastor, that theology drives methodology. Theology drives your methodology. In other words, theology, what you believe, will drive what you do. Theology drives your methodology. So if you have bad theology, what do you think's good? What, what's going to happen to churches who have bad theology? They're going to do the wrong things. So if you want to be a healthy church, you have to have correct Bible doctrine, good theology, so that you do the right thing. That's why this is important. It's important to teach and preach the truth. Otherwise, you're going to end up with false teachers, as it says here, who are going to wander away from a pure heart, a good conscience, and sincere faith. So Timothy needed to be careful to teach healthy, sound doctrine that conformed to the true gospel. Now, how would he know? Well, all teaching must be measured against the standard of the Word of God. That's how you know what healthy, correct Bible teaching is, or doctrine. So, it's interesting, the mention of the gospel in verse 11. Notice that. That moved Paul to then move on, and he, as a result of hearing that, it, Paul shares his own personal testimony. Now, why would he do that? Why would Paul share his own testimony here in these next verses? Because he was proof that the gospel really works. Paul was an example to Timothy in the world. Hey, God transformed me. The gospel of Jesus Christ transformed him, changed him. So that leads us to the second responsibility of the pastor and the people or the congregation is that we need to proclaim the gospel. Proclaim the gospel. Paul did that. Look at verse 13, because you see, what did Paul used to be like? Well, in verse 13, Paul said that formerly I was a blasphemer, a persecutor, an insolent opponent. That's what he used to be. He used to persecute the church of Jesus Christ. But God saved him. Well, how did, how did God save Paul? Look at, again, look at the end of verse 13. But I received mercy because I had acted ignorantly in unbelief. And the grace of our Lord overflowed for me with the faith and love that are in Christ Jesus. The saying is trustworthy and deserving of full acceptance that Christ Jesus came into the world to save sinners of whom I am the foremost. So how was Paul saved? Well, Jesus saved him. Jesus saved him. What did Paul become as a result of this salvation? Well, look at verse 12. Paul says, I thank him who has given me strength 
Christ Jesus our Lord, because he judged me faithful, appointing me to his service. One of, part of that service in particular, in verse 1, he said, I was an apostle. I became an apostle, a messenger of Jesus Christ. Look at verse 16. Not only was he a minister of Jesus Christ, but verse 16 says, I received mercy for this reason, that in me, as the foremost, Jesus Christ might display his perfect patience as an example to those who were to believe in him for eternal life. So Paul was not only a minister of Jesus Christ, he became an example to the church. And even to us today, we can be encouraged by this example. So, we see the first responsibility of the pastor and the peoples to teach healthy doctrine. Number two, proclaim the gospel. And number three, defend the faith. Defend the faith. This body of truth was to be defended at all costs. Look what verse 18 says. Verse 18, this charge I entrust to you, Timothy, my child, in accordance with the prophecies previously made about you, that by them you may wage the good warfare, holding faith and a good conscience. By rejecting this, some have made shipwreck of their faith, among whom are Hymenaeus and Alexander, whom I have handed over to Satan, that they may learn not to blaspheme. This is important to take note. When healthy doctrine is abandoned, faith is shipwrecked. Faith is shipwrecked. And Paul didn't want that to happen to Timothy. He didn't want it to happen to the church at Ephesus. And so we got to ask the question. As I was reading this, I was thinking, how can we avoid being shipwrecked? Shipwreck, you hope you understand, is a bad thing. If, If a ship is in the water and, say, hits rocks or an iceberg, what happens? Well, the Titanic is an example. Probably the most famous ship that's ever sunk, the Titanic, was sailing across the Atlantic Ocean. And by the way, did you know that the Titanic ignored at least five warnings? And it's interesting, as I read about the Titanic, the the last warning it received warned them about icebergs in the vicinity. They, they knew there were icebergs there that could sink the ship, but they thought they were unsinkable. And the guy who received the telegraph message on board the ship Titanic basically said this. I'm roughly paraphrasing. He basically said, shut up, leave us alone. That's what he told the guy who sent the warning. Shut up, leave us alone. Well, you know what happened to Titanic. Titanic hit an iceberg, and it sunk, and thousands of people died. It wasn't necessary. That's what happens to ships. They can sink, and it's devastating. It's dangerous. It's a horrible thing. And we're, we, we see that even here in the lives of two men, Hymenaeus and Alexander, whose lives were shipwrecked by their bad theology. They were blaspheming, it says. So how can we avoid being shipwrecked? Well, notice what the text says. The text gives you a clue. The text says that a good conscience is important for a good warfare. 
A good conscience is important for a good warfare. You see that in verse 9, or 19, sorry. Holding faith in a good conscience. A conscience is kind of like the, uh, the telegraph on the Titanic, if you will. The telegraph was telling the ship Titanic, hey, take heed, there's icebergs that can sink you. Take heed, slow down. You need to do something. <laughs> the problem is, we all have a God-given conscience. The conscience is warning us of sin, of bad theology. Don't, don't walk away from Jesus. But what, what do we do to our conscience? We can ignore it. We can, we can, t- we can do like the, the telegraph operator did on the Titanic. We can tell our, our conscience, shut up and leave me alone. And when you do that, you're headed for an iceberg. You're headed for shipwreck. Well, here's what one commentator said. I quote, A good conscience serves as the rudder that steers the believer through the rocks and reefs of sin and error. The false teachers ignored their consciences and the truth, and as a result, suffered shipwreck of the Christian faith, which implies severe spiritual catastrophe. End quote. Well, that's dangerous. We don't want to go there. So how does a good conscience go bad? Well, a good conscience goes bad when you continually sin against it. The Bible says you can sear your conscience like, like touching your skin with a hot iron will, will burn your skin, callous your skin. See, bad doctrine usually starts with bad conduct. And then that, that usually comes as a result of secret sins in our life, which we think we're, we might be the only ones that know about it, which is not true. And so, my friend, we need to beware of searing our consciences. Telling our conscience to shut up and leave us alone is going to burn your conscience to the point where you can become shipwrecked. So what do you do? Don't ignore your conscience. God gave you that conscience. Instead, you need to guard it like a treasure. It's a God-given treasure. God gave you your conscience. Don't ignore it. Guard it. And so we move on to chapter 2, and we have some spiritual responsibilities for the church. Spiritual responsibilities for the church, and basically they're coming in two parts here. Number one, we see in the very first verse that the church is to pray. When you're under spiritual attack, the, the first thing you probably need to do is pray. And look what Paul tells Timothy. He tells him and the church to pray. Look at chapter 2, verse 1. He says, First of all, then, I urge that supplications, prayers, intercessions, and thanksgivings be made for all people. And by the way, notice number 2, that includes the kings, all who are in high positions, that we may lead a peaceful and quiet life, godly and dignified in every way. By the way, may I remind you, because in verse 2, Paul mentions kings. Do you know who was the Caesar of the Roman Empire at this time? When Paul said this, he was talking about Emperor Nero, the very guy who would put Christians up on poles, and he would cover them in pitch and light them on fire just to light his garden. This guy was a lunatic. And this guy, Paul is saying, you need to pray for him. 
pray for him. Pray for his soul that he would come to Christ. The church is to pray. Now, women, let me just warn you about the second one. Okay, this is what the Bible says. Okay, the the Bible says that women are to submit. Of all the things that Paul could have said, he he exhorts women to submit in this next section. So let me just give you a heads up because he talks about submitting in verse. Where is it? Verse eleven that women are to learn quietly with all submissiveness. The basic idea is that women are to submit in various ways. We'll talk about these various ways. Let me just say, Paul and I are not male chauvinists, okay? The issue is not with Paul here. The issue is with God. If you don't, if you don't like that word submission, the, the issue is between you and God, okay? Actually, submission is a wonderful word when you understand it. Even Jesus submitted to God the Father. The Holy Holy Spirit submits to Jesus and God the Father. It is not a bad thing. The problem is with us if we don't like that. And so we're going to see Paul give specific instructions with respect to women in the public worship, in the public gatherings of the church. And you need to keep in mind, Paul is dealing with God-given functional roles here. This is not an issue of the value of a person. Okay? It doesn't mean that women are somehow less valuable than men. In fact, many times, I can assure you that women are more valuable than men. This has nothing to do with value. It is a functional issue. All right? It's the same sort of thing that happens in the military. Any of you been in the military? You would know there's different ranks in the military. And just because someone has a higher rank doesn't make that person better than the people below him. Right? In fact, sometimes the people up above are less valuable people. It's just an issue of submission. It's a, an issue of ranking. And God ranks His people. All right, So just keep that in mind. And here's Paul's instructions. The first thing he, he mentions is that women are to dress appropriately and modestly. Look at verse 9. Verse 9 says, Likewise also that women should adorn themselves in respectable apparel with modesty and self-control, not with braided hair and gold or pearls or costly attire. Here's the issue, all right? There's two ditches that you can fall into here, all right? Just pretend there's a road with ditches on each side of the road. One of them Paul mentions here is is some, some of these rich women would go and buy ostentatious, very expensive clothing. They, they would decorate their hair with gold and all sorts of other things. And then they'd walk into the church congregation and show off. What's the problem with that? They would wear stuff that other the poorer women could never afford. You know, it might take them a lifetime to be able to afford the sort of thing that they were wearing. What's the problem with that? It's pride, isn't it? It's pride. They're coming in. It's, it's, it's a show. I'm going to wear very expensive clothing. Some of them were. So I can show off. Look at me. Paul says, no, 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 women. It's, it's not about you. You're to come into the congregation and serve God and worship God and serve your fellow believers. Don't go in there and show off. That was one of the problems. Another ditch that sometimes you can fall into is 
is uh, kind of the opposite problem is you can defraud your brother in Christ. You can defraud your brother in Christ by wearing immodest clothing. Clothing that's too tight or there's not enough of it, for example. Right? So, women, if you don't know what immodest clothing looks like, if you have a husband, ask him to start with. Uh, if you have a brother, you feel comfortable, or a father, you feel comfortable talking about that, do so. Sometimes women don't understand how they can defraud and cause their brother in Christ to sin by their clothing. You can. Your clothing can draw attention to your body. It's Again, it's drawing attention to you. Some women want to draw attention to themselves by by how ornate their clothing is. Some women want to draw attention to their bodies, and if you do that, you're sinning, you're defrauding your brother. So be, just be, be aware of that. So dress appropriately or modestly. What does that mean? Well, here's what one commentator said, I quote, The word adorn means to arrange, to put in order, to make ready. A woman is to arrange herself appropriately for the worship service, which includes wearing decent clothing which reflects a properly adorned, chaste heart. The Greek word for modesty refers to modesty mixed with humility, which carries the underlying idea of shame. It can also refer to a rejection of anything dishonorable to God or refer to grief over sin. The word self-control basically refers to self-control over sexual passions. Godly women hate sin, and control their passions so as not to lead another into sin. End quote. That's what godly women do, Paul is saying. Godly women don't want to lead other people into sin. There's various ways you can do that. So think about your dress. How, what are your, what's your clothing like? Hopefully it's pointing people to God and not to you. Women, what else are you supposed to do? Well, number two, adorn yourself with good works. Look at verse 10. Verse 10, but with what is proper for women who profess godliness with good works. See, it's not about the outside. God cares more about your inside. So adorn yourself with good works. Well, let's move on, okay? That's the, the one that's probably more controversial is verse 11. Verse 11, which is basically this, that women are to learn in submission. Learn in submission. Because look at verse 11, it says, Let a woman learn quietly with all submissiveness. I know there's some controversy on this, so let me just make sure I'm clear on this. All right, What does that mean? Some Bible translations say that women are to be silent in church congregations. Well, it doesn't mean that a woman can never talk during church service time. That's not what it's talking about, and I know that for several reasons, because of what the Greek says, as well as the context. The context helps determine what does it mean that a woman is to learn quietly with all submissiveness. What what does that look like? Paul tells you in the very next verse. So the context will help you to see what's actually being said It's explaining the meaning of verse 11. So look at verse 12. Paul says, I do not permit a woman to teach or to exercise authority over a man. Rather, she is to remain quiet. So the idea is there that women are to be silent by not teaching. Okay, It's the issue of 
taking over the authority role in the church and teaching the men. It doesn't mean that women can't teach, by the way. It just means women can't teach men. Okay, Paul goes on to say so. So they're to demonstrate their submission by not usurping the authority of the pastors or the elders. So that's what verse 11 is talking about by learning quietly. There were, there were apparently women in the church who, just like we have today, right? Women stepping up. And part of the problem is because men aren't stepping up like they should. And so these feminists, they, they, they want to step up and take the leadership roles in the churches. That's not a good thing, Paul says. That is a bad thing. So he goes on to explain a little bit that, that women are to respect authority in the church. Look at verse 12 again. I do not permit a woman to teach or to exercise authority over man. Rather, she's to remain quiet. Why? Paul gives reasons for this. Verse 13. For Adam was formed first, then Eve. And Adam was not deceived, but the woman was deceived and became a transgressor. Yet she will be saved through childbearing if they continue in faith and love and holiness with self-control. So Paul's basing his teaching on the order of creation. By the way, that goes all the way back before the fall. Okay, this, this order of ranking here is not a result of the fall. Okay, God made Adam first. Before there was ever sin, then God made Eve. So Adam was first, then Eve. So, However, saying that, there are proper ministry roles in the church for women. It doesn't mean that women can't serve God in the church. It just means that teaching men and exercising authority are prohibited for you. Okay, we move on to chapter 3. In chapter 3, we're going to see some instructions concerning the church. These are instructions concerning the church. While many churches choose their spiritual leaders based on the wrong reasons, often churches choose for worldly standards. Uh, you know, they might choose a pastor, an elder, or the deacons based on how they look, <laughs> heaven forbid. Uh, or they might choose based on their experience, or maybe they have some abilities that they like. God doesn't want men to be selected by these kinds of criteria. In fact, it's interesting, the Bible says in Samuel that when God chose uh, David to be the, the second king of Israel, it's interesting that Samuel comes along and he's looking at the externals. And God says, no, don't look at the externals. I look at the heart. <laughs> the heart is the issue and and the heart is the issue here in the qualifications for church leaders. Spiritual character is more important than externals, than things like the appearance or the experience or even abilities. God is looking for men with spiritual qualifications. And as you, we don't have time to read everything it's in 1 Timothy today, but let me just point this out. There's four categories that we see in 1 Timothy chapter 3. Primarily, we see personal character. But we also see management skills at home. We see the spiritual maturity is important, as well as how is this man of God respected in the community? Is he respected 
in the community. So these are all things that he talks about. But let me just point out the first qualification for an overseer. What is an overseer? Let me answer that first. An overseer is just another word for a pastor. So when you in the scripture, when you see pastor, bishop, elder, or overseer, it's all referring to the same office in the church. Just telling it using different Greek words to talk about the different functions that the pastor has within a church congregation. Okay? So the first one's the overarching one. The the first Spiritual qualification is in chapter 3, verse 2. Look at that. Well, let's read verse 1. The saying is trustworthy. If anyone aspires to the office of overseer, he desires a noble task. Therefore, an overseer or pastor or elder must be above reproach. Let's just stop there because that, that one comes first because that's everything you see underneath that comes from that one. So what does it mean to be above reproach? It means not able to be held in a criminal sense. <clears throat> in other words, no, no crime could be... Well, let me put it to you this way. A, a pastor or an elder could not be accused of a crime. That's literally what it means. But it, but it goes even beyond that. There's no valid accusation of wrongdoing that can be made against this man of God. No flagrant sin can mar his life. It doesn't mean he's perfect because there are no perfect people except Jesus. But the idea is this is the Teflon man. When mud is flinged at the this man of God, the mud doesn't stick. It slides down the wall, right? And mud will be flung. Mud will be flung at all at all men of God. From, from some direction or another. But the, the overarching requirement here is that he has to be above reproach. Some Bible translations use the word blameless. He can't be blamed for sin, in, in, in a, certainly in a criminal sense, but there's lots of other qualifications, and all those things ultimately come from this one overarching qualification. So, I don't, we don't have time to look at everything today. I'm just, we're just getting the big picture. All right. But we see the next group of leaders in the church are deacons. So we come to verse eight. So these deacons, these, these men, they're also men, by the way. These men have qualifications and it even mentions their wives here. So let's read about it. Okay. Chapter three, verse eight. Deacons, likewise, in other words, just like the elders and pastors, must be dignified, not double-tongued, not addicted to much wine, not greedy for dishonest gain. They must hold the mystery of the faith with a clear conscience. And let them also be tested first. Then let them serve as deacons if they prove themselves blameless. Their wives, likewise, must be dignified, not slanders, but sober-minded, faithful in all things. Let deacons each be the husband of one wife, managing their children and their own households well. For those who serve well as deacons gain a good standing for themselves and also great confidence in the faith that is in Christ Jesus. These are the qualifications for a deacon. One of the big differences, let me just state, 
one of the big differences is deacons don't have to be able to teach, whereas pastors and elders have to be able to teach the Word of God. All right, so deacons are often the ones, because they have the spiritual qualifications to do this, they, they look after the practical matters of the church. Okay, that's, that's the main difference. And then in verses 14 and 15, we see the reason for this letter we call 1 Timothy. So look at verse 14. Paul says, I hope to come to you soon, but I am writing these things to you, so that if I delay, you may know how one ought to behave in the household of God, which is the church of the living God, a pillar and buttress of the truth. So, you want to know how to behave in the church? Here's the instructions, God-given instructions of how we are to behave in the church. Very helpful. And then we come to chapter 4, and we see a job description for the pastor. (laughs) Job description for God's ministers. So, if you've ever wondered, by the way, if it, how do I write a job description for my pastor? Well, you don't have to because God's already done it. But if, if you ever had to do that, all you have to do is look at the Holy Scriptures. And in chapter 4, this is very helpful. <clears throat> so we're going to read just part of chapter 4. And we see, first of all, that a pastor must preach the Word of God. A pastor must preach the Word of God. Not his own words, but the Bible. Look at chapter 4, verse 1. Chapter 4, verse 1. And we'll read all the way down to verse 7. Now the Spirit, the Holy Spirit, expressly says that in latter times some will depart from the faith by devoting themselves to deceitful spirits and teachings of demons. Through the insincerity of liars whose consciences are seared, who forbid marriage and require abstinence from foods that God created to be received, with thanksgiving by those who believe and know the truth. For everything created by God is good, and nothing is to be rejected if it's received with thanksgiving, for it is made holy by the word of God and prayer. If you put these things before the brothers, you will be a good servant of Christ Jesus, being trained in the words of the faith and of the good doctrine that you have followed have nothing to do with irreverent, silly myths. We'll stop there for a moment. All right? So Paul's talking a lot about these false teachers. What does a false teacher look like? How do you spot a false teacher? Right? Because when you go to the television and you watch the televangelist, he's not going to have a T-shirt that says, I am a false teacher. Right? Or you go to the bookstore, and and you look at all these books in the bookstore, on the front of the book, it's not going to say his name and then I'm a false teacher, right? Or you go to the internet and you read some blog post, it doesn't say I'm a false teacher, right? So how do you spot a false teacher? How do you know? Well, Scripture tells you how you can know how you can spot false teachers, right? Let me just highlight a few of them here from the text, right? Well, number one, they have abandoned the faith. They do not hold to the cardinal fundamental doctrines of the faith, of the Christian faith. They've abandoned that. Number two, they they followed after deceitful spirits. Well, what is that? Well, number one, it's it's because they're energized by Satan himself. 
So they're following Satan's demons. The demons are, are there influencing even people who preach in pulpits and people who write Christian books. So beware. There's a lot of rubbish out there. They're energized by Satan. And they're hypocrites, the Bible says. Right? How many televangelists and authors, Christian authors, do you know who, who've, who've said one thing and then they go do something else? They're hypocrites. And that's because they've, they've turned their consciences off. <laughs> you know, the warning light's been going off and they just, they've ignored it. They've seared their consciences. They did like the guy on the Titanic. Shut up and leave me alone. That's what they did to their conscience. That's how they got in this spot. And so in the process, they deny God's word and they go ahead and teach all these fancy myths. Interesting stories. Right? So that's, that's, a, that's a pretty good picture of what a false teacher looks like. So beware when you're listening to your radio and you're reading a book. There's lots of these guys out there, and women too, are also false teachers. Lots of them. In fact, you're probably going to find more of them in the Christian bookstore than you would a good teacher. So just be aware of that. And number two, as we, let's move on. What, what's the job description of the minister of God? <clears throat> number two, a pastor must practice the word of God. It's not enough to just preach it, right? A minister of God has to practice it. Look at verse 7. Let's just see what the scripture says. Verse 7, have nothing to do with irreverent, silly myths. Rather, train yourself for godliness. For while bodily training is of some value... Godliness is of value in every way as it holds promise for the present life and also for the life to come. The saying is trustworthy and deserving of full acceptance. For to this end we toil and strive because we have our hopes set on the living God who is the Savior of all people, especially of those who believe. Command and teach these things. Let no one despise you for your youth. But set the believers an example in speech, in conduct, in love, in faith, in purity. In other words, practice what you preach. Right? You heard that? That's what Paul's telling Timothy. Practice what you preach so that you don't, you're not destroying the message in the process. What's the third job description for God's ministers? We see number three, a pastor must progress in the word. You must progress. So it's not enough to just preach. It's not enough to practice. You've got to grow in Christ. You should be growing. Look at verse 13. Until I come, devote yourself to the public reading of Scripture, to exhortation, to teaching. Do not neglect the gift you have, which was given you by prophecy when the council of elders laid their hands on you. But practice these things. Immerse yourself in them so that all may see your progress. Keep a close watch on yourself and on the teaching. Persist in this, for by so doing you will save both yourself and your hearers. So this is important not just for Timothy, because Timothy's life, his preaching, his practicing of God's word in and his progress as well would be evident to all. It would have an effect on the people in the congregation. 
So here's a, a good look at what a godly teacher is like. Uh, coming from chapter 4. What's a godly teacher look like? Let's just quickly look at these. Here they are, coming from the text. Godly teachers refutes, refute false teaching, sometimes even naming names, as Paul did with Hymenaeus and Alexander. Okay, It's not ungodly to point people's names out. I say that because some people think that's unloving. All right, Number two, false are good, good teachers. Godly teachers are good ministers of Christ. They serve Christ, not themselves. Number three, godly teachers follow the good teachings of the faith. They know what the Christian faith looks like, and they hold to that. And four, they're putting their hope only in God. As we're going to see in a moment, it's not in the money. (laughs) Okay? Not in the money. And then they set an example for other believers to follow. And they devote themselves to preaching and teaching the Bible not their own philosophies or stories or whatever. They don't neglect uh, the spiritual gifts. They're watching their life and their doctrine closely. Why? Because it matters. It does. It matters. It has an effect on other people. And then last of all, they're going to persevere in believing the truth. They're going to persevere to the end. They're not going to waver from that. That's what a godly teacher looks like. And then we come to chapter 5, and we see some various groups that are mentioned here. And Paul instructs us on how to minister to these specific groups in the church. Now, again, we don't have time to read all about this. It's pretty self-explanatory. All right, but let me just point out the groups. First of all, we see the older members of the church. Chapter 5, verse 1. Basically, it's this. Treat them as family. All right, these, these groups are to be treated as family, because they are. Look at chapter 5, verse 1. Do not rebuke an older man, but encourage him as you would a father. Younger men as brothers, older women as mothers, younger women as sisters in all purity. So that's the older members. We also see the old widows that are mentioned here. How are they to be treated? This is a longer section. We won't read the whole thing, but we will look at number verse 3. Look at verse 3. Because it just says, to honor widows who are truly widows. Well, how do you know what a true widow is? Well, you have to look at all the qualifications Paul gives in the text. But he also mentions younger widows. They're to be treated a little differently from the older ones, the ones over 60. All right? So look at chapter 5, verse 11. He says, But refuse to enroll younger widows, for when their passions draw them away from Christ, they desire to marry. Okay? Different qualifications for older widows as opposed to the younger widows. And then Paul goes on to talk about the church officers. Church officers, the two offices of a local church are pastor and deacon, or the elders and the deacons. Okay? But look at chapter 5, verse 17. Let the elders who rule well be considered worthy of double honor, especially those who labor in preaching and teaching. For the scripture says, you shall not muzzle an ox when it treads out the grain, and the laborer deserves his wages. Do not emit a charge against an elder except on the evidence of two or three witnesses. As for those who persist in sin, rebuke them, in the presence of all, so that the rest may stand in fear. 
So that's for the church officers, particularly the, the elders. And then we go on into chapter 6. It mentions Christian slaves. Yes, even during this time there were Christian slaves. <clears throat> some of them had had masters who were unbelievers and some had masters who were Christians. Well, how, how, do you, how do you live in a world like this? Well, look what Paul says, chapter 6, verse 1. Let all who are under a yoke as bondservants or slaves regard their own masters as worthy of all honor so that the name of God and the teaching may not be reviled. Those who have believing masters must not be disrespectful on the ground that they are brothers. Rather, they must serve all the better since those who benefit by their good service are believers and beloved. So that's how the Christian slaves were to behave in the church. And then, starting in chapter 6, verse 3, we have some instructions for the man of God. Now, that, that term, man of God, is not something I made up. It's in the Scriptures. In fact, you'll see it in the text, particularly in verse 11. It mentions, but as for you, O man of God. All right, so how is the man of God uh, supposed to behave in the church? What is he supposed to do? Well, we've got a few things that are mentioned here. Number one, the first instruction that Paul gives to the man of God is he's to watch out for false teachers. Beware of these false teachers. Look at verse 3. Verse 3 says, If anyone teaches a different doctrine and does not agree with the sound words of our Lord Jesus Christ and the teaching that accords with godliness, he is puffed up with conceit and understands nothing. He has an unhealthy craving for controversy and for quarrels about words which produce envy, dissension, slander, evil suspicions, and constant friction among people who are depraved in mind and deprived of the truth, imagining that godliness is a means of gain. So basically this. The first instruction that Paul says here is, watch out for false teachers. What are they like? Well, again, you want to know what a false teacher looks like? Paul gives you some instruction here. All right, I've, I've put several things up on the screen here. You can see what it looks like coming from the text. Number one, they are conceited. In other words, they're arrogant. They're proud. They think they're right. All right, so they go around commanding everybody to do what they want when in reality they're wrong. But notice the Scripture also says they're confused. They're very confused. They, they think they know the truth, but they don't. And three, they're caught up in controversies about words. These are the kind of people who make mountains out of molehills, so to speak, right? Turn, turn non-essentials into essentials. Uh, the essentials? Oh, no, we don't want to talk about essentials. We'll talk about the non-essentials, and we make them essentials. That's the sort of thing they do. And then they, they create uh, division and strife within churches. They divide churches. They split churches. What's their motivation? Well, they're in love with money. By the way, just let's just be clear, because Paul's going to talk about money in a moment. Money is not evil. Okay. 
money is not evil. It's the love of money that's the problem. The love of money is a sin. Money is not evil. Money is neutral. It's, it's what do you think of it? How do you use it? Do you love it too much? That's the problem here, okay? These false teachers love money. That's, that's their motivation for why they, they do what they do. And have you ever noticed how many of these false teachers, you see them on the television and in the bookstores, they're incredibly rich. You know, they got their own private Learjets. You know, they, got, they got the expensive cars, multiple mansions, and so forth. Not all false teachers are that way. Many of them are, though. Have you noticed that? They love money. They do. So that's what Paul goes on to say, don't love money. Because love of money is, is a root to all kinds of other sins and evil. All right, look what he says in verse 6. But godliness with contentment is great gain. For we brought nothing into the world, and we cannot take anything out of the world. But if we have food and clothing, with these we will be content. But those who desire to be rich fall into temptation, into a snare, into many senseless and harmful desires that plunge people into ruin and destruction. For the love of money is a root of all kinds of evils. It is through this craving that some have wandered away from the faith and pierced themselves with many pangs. Paul instructs Timothy, don't love money. It will. Why, why is that, by the way? Well, Jesus says so in Matthew chapter 6. It's where your treasure is, there your heart will be also. So if your treasure is in your money, guess what's going to happen? It draws you away from Christ. That's why this is important. Because it draws you from what you need the most. So don't love the money. And so to warn Timothy and us, by the way, as well, about the various dangers of covetousness, Paul gives us four things that we need to be aware of here. Four facts. Number one, he says, wealth does not bring contentment. You see that in verse 6. Wealth does not make people content. It won't. I mean, at what point do you stop? You ever thought about that? You win the lottery or you become a millionaire? How many millionaires are content with just being a millionaire? Right? Oh, i got to get another dollar. i got to get another possession. Right? It just it keeps going. It doesn't stop. It will never make you content. And, and number two, Paul says in verse 7 that wealth will not last. It's transient. It's, you can't take it with you. Right? You ever seen a wealthy man, you know, pulling a trailer behind a hearse? You ever seen that? Well, maybe you have. But rarely, right? Why? Because these wealthy people can't take it with them. Can't take it with them. It reminds me of the, the joke that somebody asked about some wealthy man. I don't know who it was. Some wealthy man died one time, and, and somebody asked the, uh, the guy who was overseeing the will, well, how much did he leave behind? And the answer was everything. Everything. He left everything behind because he can't take it with him. But the good news is for Christians, by the way, is you can send it on ahead. You can't take it with you, but you can send it on ahead. When you're laying up treasure in heaven, you can send it on ahead. All right, so wealth's not going to last, verse 7 says. Verse 8 says that our basic needs 
are easily met by God. He can meet your needs. He knows your needs, food, clothing, that sort of thing. And in verses 9 and 10, we see that the desire for wealth leads to sin. Leads to sin. Leads to all kinds of evils. Right? Hopefully we don't need to elaborate on that, do we? How money has infected so many lives in, this, in our culture. Sad. So Paul says, number two, that, hey, don't love money. But number three, he says, be a man of good character. Be a man of good character. Look at verse 11. Verse 11. But as for you, O man of God, flee these things. All these things we just saw in the context. Flee those things. Pursue righteousness, godliness, faith, love, steadfastness, gentleness. Fight the good fight of faith. Take hold of the eternal life to which you were called and about which you made the good confession in the presence of many witnesses. I charge you in the presence of God, who gives life to all things, and of Christ Jesus, who in his testimony before Pontius Pilate made the good confession, to keep the commandment unstained and free from reproach until the appearing of our Lord Jesus Christ, which he will display at the proper time, he who is the blessed and only sovereign, the King of kings and Lord of lords, who alone has immortality, who dwells in unapproachable light, with whom no one has ever seen or can see, to him be honor and eternal dominion. Amen. Paul basically says to Timothy, be a man of good character. And there's three exhortations in particular, three commands, three exhortations Paul tells Timothy that are in the text. And these are helpful for anybody who wants to be a man of God. Anybody wants to be a man of God, this is, this is what you need to do. Look, look at verse 11. Because first thing Paul told Timothy, he says, flee. What are you supposed to flee? You know, the idea is here you're supposed to separate yourself from the sins of these false teachers. Don't be like these false teachers. What's drawing them into this false teaching? Don't be like that. Flee from it. Get away. Separate. Number two, Paul says, pursue it's not enough to just separate, but you got to put off and put on something. Pursue, verse 11 says. In other words, don't just be negative. You've got to be known for something positive. right? Heaven forbid that we be a church or Christians who all we're known for is what we're against. You ever met someone like that? You know what they're against, but you ever wondered, what, what is this person actually for? It's sad. That's sad when people are that way. That's fine to be against things. It's fine to be separated from things. But what are you for? So Paul says, pursue this positive growth. And then third, he says, fight. Don't give in. Don't give up. Fight. It's a spiritual conflict against Satan and this and these evil forces, Satan's kingdom. So flee, pursue, and fight. That's what a man of God does. Number four. Fourth instruction for the man of God is he's to be a wise steward of all of God's resources. And God, one of the ways you can do that is knowing how to handle treasure. Whatever that treasure looks like, know how to handle it. Look at verse 17. Verse 17. As for the rich in this present age, charge them not to be haughty, nor to set their hopes on the uncertainty of riches, 
but on God, who richly provides us with everything to enjoy. Uh, By the way, let me just notice in your Bible, verse 17, the last word in my Bible says, enjoy. Enjoy. Yes, God wants you to enjoy everything He's given to you. The things that aren't sinful. Enjoy them. (laughs) But don't lose sight of the Creator in the process. All right? Verse 18. They are to do good, to be rich in good works, to be generous and ready to share, thus storing up treasure for themselves as a good foundation for the future, so that they may take hold of that which is truly life. God wants you to be a good steward of His resources. How do you do that? How can you be a a wise steward? Number 1, verse 17 says you're to be humble. You're to be humble. Don't be haughty. Don't be proud. The natural tendency for, for those of us who are rich, by the way, if you live in New Zealand... You're rich. <laughs> you live in a first world country, you're rich. Okay? Our tendency is to become proud. God says, beware. Pride comes before destruction. You're to be humble. And then verse 17, we also see you're to trust God, not in your wealth. God is the one who, who gives you the wealth. It's not about you anyway. And then number three, enjoy what God gives you. That's what the end of verse 17 says. Enjoy it. Don't misuse it. Keep trusting in God. Use it for God's glory, but enjoy it. Don't feel like you're sinning when you go to the grocery store and buy vegetables. (laughs) Buy some vegetables and enjoy them. Buy a car and use it for God's glory. Buy a house. Use it for God's glory. Okay. Don't feel guilty. And then number four, use the wealth for the good of others. That's what verses 18 and 19 are talking about. Again, it's not all about you. You're you're to be able to give to other people, help other people, minister to them. That's why God gives you those resources. So that's what a wise steward does with God's resources. And then the last instruction that Paul gives is he says this, guard the truth. Guard the truth. It's It's a deposit That's what he calls it here in verse 20. Look at verse 20. Paul says, O Timothy, guard the deposit entrusted to you. Avoid the irreverent babble and contradictions of what is falsely called the knowledge. For by professing it, some have swerved from the faith. Grace be with you. So how is God protecting the truth? Do you believe God cares about the truth? Of course He does. Jesus called Himself the truth in John 14, verse 6. God calls His Word, the Scriptures, the truth. Of course He cares about the truth. How is He doing that? Well, we see here, even in this book, that God gave the truth to the Apostle Paul, and then Paul's entrusting the truth to Timothy, and then Timothy is supposed to pass the truth on. This this guarding and protecting of the truth is it's not a treasure that's to be hoarded. Yes, guard it by all means. But it's not to be hoarded. It was Timothy's responsibility to guard the truth and then pass it on. And this is God's way of protecting the truth. And so 
Do you realize, my friends, you stand in a long line of people who have guarded the truth. You sit here, you have God's word today because there have been people who've gone before you who have guarded the truth. If that chain had been broken, you wouldn't be here today. You wouldn't have God's word in your language. But we can thank God that there have been people all through every age, every generation who have guarded the truth and they've passed it on and they're, and they're passing it on. It's our responsibility to guard the truth now. That's our responsibility. Guard it. Protect it. Don't give it up to those false teachers. We're to be stewards of Bible doctrine. And God expects us to be faithful in sharing His good news with others. Let me end with Dennis Mock's applicational message. What do we do with 1 Timothy? What do we do with this? Here's what it says. I'm quoting, Since false doctrine leads to improper conduct, we should be careful to teach correct doctrine, which leads to proper behavior by God's people in the church. End quote. My friends, Jesus loves his bride, the church. Don't take it lightly. If you love Jesus, you will love what he loves. You're going to guard biblical doctrine. And it's going to drive you to behave properly and do it all for God's honor and glory. Let's pray.